0: makers, welcome to another episode of the Sacred Changemakers podcast. My name is Jane Worrellow, and I have another great guest lined up for you today. And this is a personal friend of mine, someone I think you're really going to love. But before we enjoy a deep conversation together, I want to remind you why we're here. This podcast is about change and transformation, but we're not talking about just any old change. We believe in change for good, which lies at the intersection of three things purpose, impact, and prosperity for all. We want to encourage you to think just a little wider about your own life from your personal and professional development, to also ask the question, how can I make a meaningful impact with my life? It's time for us to find a way to live in resonance with each other and all living things. And at Sacred Changemakers, we're here to help, to build the foundations of a more equitable, loving, and resonant world. So come with us as we go on a journey behind the scenes with people who are making a real difference in our world. Sometimes we're going to be interviewing change makers and sometimes we'll be leading deep dive conversations tackling the challenging issues of our times. But first, a word to our sponsor. Now, today's episode is sponsored by Coaches Business School, the world's leading business training for coaches and consultants, helping them to succeed in business so they can make a meaningful difference in our world. Go to CoachesBusinessSchool.com to get the tools, strategies, and frameworks you need to enjoy growing your business in a way that is profitable, predictable, and purpose-driven. And a big shout out to all of our coaches, because without them, this wouldn't be possible. Okay, so our guest on the podcast this week is John Bartlett, founder of Project Libero, rocket launcher, advocate for better mental and emotional health. Living and working with a severe and enduring mental health condition means that John has spent lots of time feeling unheard and misunderstood. It informs his work helping individuals and organizations think well using his model of inside-out inclusion. Following a 20-year leadership career in the military and public transport, John is now a successful coach and facilitator, putting listening at the core of his practice. He believes that for people to feel truly seen, they have to know that they've been heard. And our title for today's conversation is Creating Human Connection with Radical Availability. So let me welcome John to the podcast. Welcome, John. Hi there, Jane. Oh, it's really good to have you on this. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. And, you know, as I was thinking about it, I can't help, right, but notice how our collective awareness around mental health is is really growing in this time. So I'm really looking forward to discussing this with you and, and getting your perspective. But before we do, I'd love for you to take us behind the scenes of your professional bio and Tell us something about the real life human that lies behind that. Who is he?
1: Oh, there's there's a tough question to to start us <laughs> off. Um, <clears throat> Well, I I guess um, you've alluded to the fact that we know each other personally, and that kind of falls somewhere in the middle of this story. But um, I left school and I knew that I wouldn't study at university. So I went into the Royal Air Force and um, had an interesting early career. So I ended my first career by the time I was 25. And then I I looked around and I couldn't find, as I I like to joke, anything as as varied and violent until I joined London Underground. And I worked on the metro system in London for 10 years, um, including such um, big events as the uh, the bombings in 2005. I was on duty on that day. Um, I left London Underground because I didn't want to get, I guess, institutionalized, having worked in, in public service and in military service. And I started working for myself and doing a lot of work about sort of incident control and management, because that's a lot of what I've done in my life. And then from there, um, I started to kind of get into how do people react to making decisions under pressure? Um, what's the quality of their decision making like? Um, how do they manage to lead through crisis? And uh, what, what happened was I thought, well, I, I need to market my own little business and i uh, So I thought, I shall take to blogging. I shall take to Twitter. This is 10 years ago now. It was all all quite new at that point. And what I saw were a lot of people um, speaking about mental health and uh, mental ill health, particularly, and using quite pejorative language. So they were talking about, oh, I'm really struggling to, uh, to complete this PowerPoint presentation. I can't decide what slides to put in. I'm completely schizophrenic. Or I've tidied my desk. I'm a little bit OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And and I think the thing that worried me most about that was, apart from the reductive language, was that these were uh, HR and learning and development professionals who were speaking like this in a public forum. So I did what any brave, self-respecting freelancer would do and wrote an anonymous blog for an HR website. And the response was immediate. And it was like, well, it's fantastic that this woman is speaking up openly about her mental health. Because we have this assumption that it's only women who speak about their, their their emotional and mental health, and certainly this idea that it's okay for women to cry, but not for men. Um, and so I thought, well, I'd better do something to have you know, so much interest in it. So I ran this pop-up event, and in all seriousness, I've kind of never really looked back because what happened at that event was Jane, people kind of went, Well, if you know so much about mental health, why don't you come and tell us about it? But The thing is, I didn't really want to out the fact that I've lived with a diagnosis now, at this point, some 30 years of a diagnosis of of bipolar disorder. Um, I didn't necessarily want that to become my job because it's hard work being personally and professionally unwell at the same time. Um, But by accident, I seem to have found myself... um, working in this arena because of lived experience, I guess. And I know you and I have had a number of conversations about, I kind of started with that about we didn't need just clinicians' views, we needed people with lived experience. And so I deliver such things as mental health first aid training. But as time has gone on, my my work has come away from... Out out training, and much more into facilitative conversations, much more into peer support programs, much more into helping people really be fully available to themselves and to others, and that's where you find me now in two thousand
0: and twenty-two. You know, it's funny as I'm listening to you talk. There, one of the things we talk about, sacred change makers, quite a bit is, is is how we kind of find our purpose, or in other words, how our purpose finds us. And I could just hear that in the way, you know, you've been called, it's like you've been pulled into this profession through some kind of synchronicity. And I love that your lived experience is now kind of valuable to others in a way, because you're not coming from a clinician's perspective. You're coming from this lived, embodied experience, and that's got to be different. So I want to ask you, what have you learned since really entering into this professional work?
1: Um, that, it, that many, many people want to... Um, generalise from their specific experience, because my experience of uh, bipolar disorder is very different to somebody else's with the same diagnosis we might present very differently. Mm -hmm. Um, That everybody's experience is valid. Um, And I think there's something here that um, healthcare providers and organisations, when they're they're in terms of trying to Uh, to help people, they kind of only want to help to the lowest common denominator, and they want to intervene and to fix people. And and so often, people don't need fixing. They just need a little bit of help, a little bit of advice, and very often they just need listening to. And that is the start for a lot of people.
0: It's funny, I was uh, talking to somebody earlier this week, and they were discussing, we were kind of discussing like what's happening in the world right now and how we're making sense of it. And, and this, this person, this thought leader, turned to me and said, I, I actually think that our culture, our society, is going through a crisis of listening. We've forgotten how to do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, I, I would I would absolutely agree with that. And I think, I think it's just, just that we've forgotten how to do it. We don't actually make the time for it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's lost its value.
0: Right. And I guess that's quite easy to do in a a world that is as fast paced as the one that we live in today and as complex, you know, in both our personal and our professional lives. Now, I'm not making excuses for it because I absolutely agree with you. I think for me, and I think it was Mark Nepo who said, listening is the doorway to everything that matters in life and business. And I absolutely agree. So I'd love you to give us a sense. I mean, you know, just walk us into what it is that listening can bring in terms of value, if you like, for us as individual and collective humans.
1: So I think the question I often ask people is, who could you be if you were truly heard? And, and most people have never really stopped to consider that. And you know from your work as a coach that that often when, when you sit down with a client, they, they really are unsure of how to just speak about themselves, speak about what's happening for them at this time. And I guess what I've done is I've combined a variety of different things because you and I met on a training some 15 years ago. Um <laughs> <laughs> and um you know went our different directions and, and then came back again but over the years I've been picking up different trainings. so um I've, I've become very interested in the work of Nancy Klein and, mm-hmm. and Time to Think um I'm a big advocate for the work of Megan Wright and John Higgins about speaking up and, and I think all of these things are, are, are great but so often people aren't very available okay and we're only available if it's a A clinical setting or we're available if it's a a coach setting where in fact you know you've paid me money to come and sit down with you and we will talk about whatever's important whereas in fact I think a lot of my work in organizations where it's around sort of peer support and managerial skill it's about teaching them to put their phone down or away or turning it off um I often think that we have so many distractions, So, and, and, I, and I can classify the distractions. That a lot of them begin with with D. There's the devices, there's the demands that we have, there's the division and discord in the world. I think there's debt, and I don't mean financial necessarily, but the kind of emotional labor debt that many people have um, within their organizations. And with all those distractions going on, no wonder that people don't stop and take the time to listen. And You know, when I work in organizations, it's interesting how many people say, oh, yeah, someone will grab me in the corridor and go, have you got two minutes? And and then people feel like, oh, yeah, do you really mean two minutes or I've got to go to this meeting? And you think, well, you've missed a chance there to find out what's going on for that person because they've approached you maybe they've put everything they had into that into the confidence to kind of go could you stop and can we just talk for a second please and if you brush them off at that point you might you might lose that opportunity for another six months or a year or more and so I think at at its very first part from my perspective it's about availability for listening and um people sort of say to me well John you must be a great listener because you have a diagnosis of a mental health condition no not really Um, particularly with bipolar we're not great at listening to people often particularly when the delusions of, of grandeur and things come in Um, and then people say oh it, it must be down to your, to your vulnerability because you understand these things you are brave and and strong because you have been through you know trials yourself and, and I say no it's, it's not about my vulnerability it's about my availability and that's what I mean about radical availability when I when I suggested that we use that as the as the strap line for the episode because actually to be available to be present to be there for family friends for colleagues is is a radical thing these days now I know you and I have talked about what radical actually means but for the listeners we tend to think of radical as um, disruptive um but in fact one of the meanings of radical is about foundational and core and it's about getting back to our core sense of availability because i understand people talk about this world is a really fast-moving world but i hear the term vuca used an awful lot but vuca is something from the cold war they were talking about that 30 years ago when i was in the military and it was coined long before that lives have always been volatile uncertain complex and ambiguous it's just a question of do we look up from our devices and actually look at the person in front of us do we actually um invite people in and i think if you if you look at a lot of the issues that are going on in the world at the moment we're putting quite a lot of people in out groups either consciously or unconsciously whether that's things like by their protected characteristics as as we would term it in the uk so those are um Uh, would be race, colour, gender, age, uh, same-sex marriage, those sort of things. Um, And some people, we're just deliberately excluding people. And and other people right now, if you think about with the pandemic, they've no choice but to be in an out group because they can't get into the office because um, they've they've been asked to work from home. And if their manager doesn't check in with them, how will they be heard? If it all just becomes about going to a meeting. so, So the idea that we would actually down our devices which are only tools after all um and listen to people is it seems to be revolutionary wherever I go anyway which which scares me if I'm honest <laughs>
0: yeah and you know as I'm listening to you there I'm I I'm just like looking at our title creating human connection with radical availability and I'm wondering and this is what I'd love to talk to you about is is the fact that we find this radical availability so challenging in today's modern world because we've actually lost the value of true human connection. It's almost like we don't value it anymore. Like we think about, oh yeah, we've got to have a meeting or we've got to speak to this person or we've got to do this, that, and the other. But where, particularly in our professional lives, do we go actually I really need to connect at a deeper level <laughs> with this person? Because I'm giggling here because I can't, I mean, I've worked in corporate life now for, like you said, over 30 years. And it's like I can count on one hand the amount of organizations where I've even seen that happen a few times, literally. So it's like we've lost that, that mm-hmm. value of connectivity. And therefore, if we could just bring back that value, would that mean that we'd find it easier to be more available? Do the two things go hand in hand like that, John? Is that what you mean by inside out inclusion?
1: Yeah, I I think so at times. Um, So. There's the truism, isn't there? What gets measured gets managed. Mm. Um, So if you manage people with a spreadsheet, then, you know, it's all about, are they available? Do they come into work 96.4% of the time? And that means they don't trigger a sickness warning. But if you're available and talking to them, then in fact, you've had that conversation. You don't end up with sickness absence to deal with. You don't end up with grievance. You don't end up with um, uh, divisive claims in the workplace because that availability as as a manager or as a, as a leader has seen that off in, in you know things which were sort of starting to build up which you weren't aware of you've become aware of because you've you've made that availability you've perhaps sat down with two people in, in the team and went hey you two in that meeting you were a bit off so let's let's unpack that and let's think about how we can do that differently and i think so many people are listening to fix, they're listening to uh, get a right answer. Um, And increasingly, I think this is a generational thing as well. Um, So our generation was, I think, brought up on a lot of complexity and has gone through a lot of change. Whereas I think the schooling that younger people have had these days points to there being past standardized tests, get a right answer, go to the internet and check it there. And then if it's not right, then it's not right. Whereas I think Uh, people like you and me and I think many coaches will be very comfortable with the grey areas so um, I think that's one part of it and I think the other part is people are uncomfortable being themselves they've got their own stuff going on and forgive me a little anecdote here Um, I was sitting down with a psychiatrist a number of years ago And to give you context, I had to go through 16 months, see 13 different people in order to get some therapy. Mm. And I was having an ongoing review with a psychiatrist. And this was the third month running where I would see a different locum psychiatrist. Mm. And the person concerned came into the room and they sat down and they rummaged around in their handbag for their laptop, huge handbag the lady had rummaged around. And said, oh, yeah, tell me, tell me what's going on. And I said, well, it's OK, I'll wait for you to finish. And she's rummaging around trying to find a power cable. Oh, really, sorry, it's power's run down. It's OK, I can wait. Well, no, yeah, but well, no, no, we've got a limited amount of time. So why don't you tell me, tell me what's going on for you. And then, OK, it's OK, I'll wait until you've got your laptop out. And she's like, well, um, but we're going to lose time. I said, well, have you read my notes before you come to this meeting? And she's like, well, no, I have not had a chance. Okay. So is it useful for me to go back through the notes and do you want all of that detail or do you just want me to tell you where I am now and, and just bring you, keep you up to date in the last four weeks and you're just going to add something on the bottom. And, uh, And she's like, well, no, no, it's really important I hear things in your words. And I'm like, my words have been transcribed several times. And forgive me, what makes you think I would like to redo that with somebody else? Bearing in mind, I may get a different locum doctor next month. Mm. And... Now, I appreciate that as a psychiatrist within our National Health Service, she had a care path made to to keep me on, uh, you know, uh, check my medication was okay, check that I was being looked after, all of those things. But I happened because they made a mistake with my records. And um, so I got to go through my file um, fairly fairly soon afterwards. And I found out that I'd been written up as a resistant patient because I had asked the doctor to listen to me properly. I'd ask the doctor to do their job, but that got me classes resistant. Now, I think most people would say that the relationship, that the biggest indicator of success in therapy is the relationship between the therapist and uh, the, the person attending. Terrible relationship with the psychiatrist there. And it's interesting that very often some of the best care I've had within psychiatric services has come from a community psychiatric nurse who often have a bit more time to listen. They're not going to fix you. They're not going to prescribe. They don't have the power to move you down a care pathway, but they have got the time to sit with you and allow you to unpack your thoughts, to listen well and allow you to speak up. And I think it's quite telling that, um, that availability, um, isn't built into some people's jobs. It's not built into the person who had the power of decision-making over me. It wasn't built into their job, but it was built into a nurse's job. And we, at some level, we accord a certain deference and status to doctors higher than nurses. So what does that say? Are we not valuing the skills that the nurse brings? So I, I don't know if that answers some of your question
0: it does and i mean you've brought up so many like rich nuggets there that i want to go back and talk <laughs> Sorry. through because there's so there's so much of what you're talking about here that i think is is really important because and i'll say why i think it's really important i think very often you know we just kind of accept the cultural norms the systems that we've been kind of well we've inherited i guess from generations before and and you know as you were talking there it sounds like this is not just an individual issue this is a systemic issue that has created a bias for a, for an a system for a different outcome than human connection <laughs> right that's that's what i was hearing as you were talking and you said what gets measured gets managed you said that a few paragraphs ago and I think you're absolutely right, because, as you were talking about what gets measured and what gets managed, and you've you've told us about, you know the the uh, the psychiatrist that really didn't have time or any availability it sounds like for human connection with you. It's like, and I, I'm also thinking about my own life, which professionally is pretty busy, but also, I'm kind of playing a little bit of devil's advocate here, John, with thinking about listeners or even my clients, what they would say about this, this concept of radical availability. It's almost like I think we would put it on a polarity. And on one hand, there is I can be radically available for human connection with my people, particularly if I'm a leader or something. But then on the other hand, I can focus and actually get the things done that I'm being paid to do, which will be measured in a way that human connection is not being measured right now. Because as you said, in many of our roles, our professional roles, there hasn't been space for that and it hasn't been taken into account. So it really isn't getting measured. So therefore it gets ignored. So what do we do with that? Because if we do the radical availability, if I'm playing devil's advocate, then we don't have time for human connection. And I can say that certainly over the last two years, I've noticed executives that I work with, just having to take on more and more and more and more and not getting paid any different for the increased responsibility. So it's like, I remember this video, gosh, this is back probably about six years ago, there was a video on YouTube, and it kind of made the rounds as a meme. And it was this woman going, ain't nobody got time for that. (laughs) And that's what You know, like, I can imagine some of my clients just going, I haven't got time for human connection and radical availability. Like, if I do that, then I can't present to the stakeholders that I'm legally, you know, meant to produce this profit at the end of the quarter. So how do we navigate all of this?
1: How's that great resignation thing going in the United States?
0: (laughs) Well, you can see from the press exactly how it's going. So, yeah. so look,
1: I mean, I'm being slightly facetious there, but <clears throat> you have to bear in mind, I've, I've worked in organizations where the decisions I have made as a leader are life and death. OK, where it is about are we going to run that train and we don't know that that track is safe?
0: Yeah.
1: OK, that actually. You know, they think that leadership in the military is all about shouting at people. OK, and, and ordering them around. Um, but actually, you try telling 10 people who've all got their own guns um, to do something in a, in a rude way, in a, in a in a not an unconnected way, in an uncaring way and see how long you last. OK, um, Simon Sinek said it very well about it's not about being in charge as a leader. It's about taking care of those in your charge. OK, and, and my experience as an operational leader is I get it. But you know what? Meetings are overrated most of the time. Mm-hmm. If we actually there was some there was some dis, def, de, decisive discipline within meetings, they wouldn't need to last as long. Mm-hmm. You know, send your subordinates, train them up. So often, I see managers going, to "Oh, I'm really, really busy," and then when you get into it, it's because they're doing the work of their direct reports because they don't trust them, or they're over checking the work of their direct reports because they don't check, they don't trust them. So so often, so many of the reasons that people um, Advance for not being available they kind of go well yeah but i haven't got time so I've, I've, I've got to be busy but you think well but if you make time for your people they will come and take up the slack okay now this is something we were taught as servant leadership many many years ago i'm impressed with simon sinek he's made a very nice career out of leaders eat last but it's nothing that i wasn't taught in basic training in the royal air force um And and any number of different military organizations, some variation of that rule. OK, and and I heard him tell that story again recently and and it's still moving and it's still powerful. And it is still about actually if you look after your people, they will look after you. They will work harder. They will do more. They will. It's not necessarily about, well, I need more pay to, you know, I need more resource. And I think this is often for me the difference between a leader and a manager. A manager manages the process, manages the resources. A leader leads people. Mm. Okay. And if a, if a man, if you give a manager a task, they generally ask for more resource at some level. Sometimes that might be more people to do it, more money to do it, whatever. A leader tends to go back and find out what more they can do with the people that they have, and develop them differently and more. Um, and to do that, you've got to be available for your people. You've got to know your people.
0: Yeah, and i totally with you there. Um, I want to go back to something you said before your answer to that one as well, another nugget that I want to pull out. You said people are uncomfortable being themselves. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah. Um. <clears throat> So um, most of us have got things we're ashamed of, we're sad about, things we feel that people would dislike us if we, uh, if we told them the real truth about ourselves. Um, people are frightened to be true to themselves. If you only think about the struggles that it's that people have been through to be openly out in the workplace or for... Um, you know for the for the problems that we've faced most recently about getting people to understand that racism could heaven forbid be institutional or structural um you know newsflash from my perspective it is um but i think many of us have been made to feel from a young age that something about us is wrong or broken or needs fixing or shouldn't be seen in the light of day and sometimes we'll have There'll be no reason that we feel that other than people haven't given us time or haven't encouraged us to speak about ourselves, haven't been friendly and welcoming. We weren't encouraged to speak about our emotions when we were young, for example. It will be things like that. And I think then people get to the point where they're gonna go, well, I've not talked about this to anybody for years, and, and, and now I can't. I, I don't know how to. And so so it's obviously something that's wrong with me because I see other people managing to do it. Um, and, and I think there's <clears throat> It's that old um, truism, isn't it? You know, don't judge your insides by everybody else's outsides. And I think with things like social media, that's never been a more apt statement that people kind of go, well, I couldn't possibly talk about the fact that um, I had a tough time with um, the birth of my child and I had postnatal depression because I see other mums getting on with it and doing great, you know? And so I think people fundamentally are, are afraid to admit some form of potentially perceived weakness when in fact speaking about that stuff would be really really powerful
0: mm. yeah I, I and, and it's interesting because when I think about creating human connection I think you know that is a truism people are uncomfortable being themselves and what's interesting and we know this now from the work of Brene Brown is that you know when we're being vulnerable we feel shame doing that. Mm. But when other people are listening and watching that, they see courage. And I wanted to talk about this because you mentioned something to me before we started uh, recording. Because, and I'm also noticing it myself in this interview, is how open, how radically available you are in terms of being comfortable, being completely yourself. And I know that you've, you've mentioned to me that people say to you that you know, you're brave when you do that. There's some courage involved in doing that. And I know you, know, you, you, you don't feel quite that way about
1: it. No, I, I, I don't think I've had a large amount of courage to get through my life. Um, <clears throat> a couple of reasons, I mean, one, um, people can't see me, but I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a white man, um, middle-aged, um, relatively well-spoken with a relatively good education. So I've had a fair amount of privilege that came with going into the military and, and getting that sort of thing as, as I went through. Um, I didn't speak openly about my mental health until only a few years ago. I didn't disclose it. Um, and I wouldn't say that I bore it as a badge of shame, but it was just not something to to speak about and i think for me it's not about all the courage to speak up because because this is my life and i've lived it to the best of my ability and at times really really poorly um massive amounts of debt promiscuity gambling and the like as, as a young man you know poor ways to cope with the stresses and strains i was going through um but I don't feel that makes me courageous. I feel that just makes me dealing with the next thing that's in front of me. And I don't think I don't perceive myself to have a disability, but I fall within the parameters within the United Kingdom um, under the Equality Act that I could I could say that I have a disability. Um, but there's something for me, it's, it's not so much that I have a disability, as much as is society disabling to me, you know, the social model of disability. So, so if there were ramps everywhere, then people who have um, motion difficulties and have to use um, walking aids or um, an electric chair or something, then they're not disabled anymore, are they, because they don't have any stairs to go up. And I think, for me, it's it's okay and easy for me to speak up about my mental health and it's probably easier for me than it is for other people. Um, and so I I hope that it gives them perhaps the realization that it's okay. The world doesn't end if you speak openly about it. So, so I don't believe that's courageous as much as I hope it's encouraging (laughs) really. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so, and I mean, let's, let's take the French root of the word. So rather than, um, Courageous, we think of encourage, the same word root, but it's to give heart to on mm-hmm. courage, isn't it? So it, I hope that my availability gives people um, heart and makes them think, yeah, you know what? I, I can absolutely, if that guy can talk about this stuff, I can go and say to my family, hey, I've been feeling pretty low these last weeks and I haven't spoken to you about it. Can we sit down and talk, please? Mm-hmm. You
0: know, and I think that what you're saying is so important for people to hear because even I have a feeling, and you know, I've had some mental health health issues myself. Um, It's going back a bit now, but um, I remember the stigma around it. And living in the US, it's a huge stigma because it's very difficult to get health insurance if you have had some kind of mental or psychiatric intervention at any point in your life. So this is where I'm saying this is not just an individual issue. It's also systemic. So yeah. if we've got people that are listening now, and and they're agreeing with us, because I, I can see how it's so important that we understand how to be radically available to each other. So we do bring more human connection kind of back into our lives. Cause I think we're actually hardwired for that as humans, but I wonder what advice would you have for people? Because I actually believe, and you may challenge me on this, John, I'm really interested to see what you say (laughs) that there are environments where it's not welcome. (laughs)
1: oh no I'd I'd absolutely agree that there are environments where it's not welcome um and I I think that's something we're working on and I think I I can't speak for the United States Uh, I mean I've traveled extensively in the U.S. and spent a lot of time over there um thankfully a lot in the national parks system um which is very um rewarding and very um soothing for me um but Mm. I I couldn't imagine the um the struggles to maintain care it's hard enough getting health insurance um private health insurance in the uk um if you've had um uh, challenges to your mental health or a diagnosis um so what it's like in the, in the us i i couldn't barely imagine but i think i think b- before i get into where i think the, the kind of the way out is I think before anything else, you have to think about what is the cost of being incongruent? What is the cost of not asking for help? What is, what is the cost to you of internalising things where your emotional or your mental health is being damaged? Whether that's systemic racism, whether that's um, discrimination on the grounds of your disability or your sexuality. And there's a cost by not living as who you want to be truly. And I appreciate that it it varies in different parts of the country. And certainly in the United Kingdom, there are certain um, parts of the country where, you know, London is seen as very open and progressive in in political terms. I I guess the equivalent would be Portland, um, in uh, Portland, Oregon, um, in the US. Um, But I think whether you're there or whether you're in um, a small little, small town in the middle of nowhere these days with social media and with the internet, you can find your tribe. You can find other people who think like you do quite easily. That wasn't the case when I was, when I was a a teenager. So for me, I think there are three steps that people can take. Um, And this is very simplistic as we are just on a quick podcast, but there's something here about thinking well. um, And that's taking the time to do that. Um, being allowed the time to do that Um, listening well. And that's either if you are helping someone to to listen really well, but also to listen to what people say in response to you and then to speak well for what you need um, and to advocate for that. And sometimes you may not be in a position to advocate for it yourself. So as a consequence, you may have to ask a friend, a family member, a, a team leader, maybe somebody somewhere else in the organization, but, someone who can advocate for you is incredibly powerful but in order to get at somebody who can advocate for you you're going to have to be able to explain what's what's going on Mm -hmm. um and forgive me because because what's happened there is i'm on some quite heavy medication in order to deal with things and i've lost the thread of your of your question there slightly <laughs> jane so i'm going to have to ask you to to come back in and check I'm worry, still on the light um, you
0: are and i think i think you've answered that in a in a in a really effective way because i mean i'm just thinking about myself you know and i i I've done a lot of personal growth development. I work in coaching. So I'm, I'm I'm familiar with these terms. But when I actually think about my life, right, because the other thing I want to say to listeners is we're not just talking here about, you know, some pathological mental health. We're actually talking about your own emotional well-being as well and your own mental well-being. You don't have to have something that's diagnosable in this day and age because our systems actually are not really designed for our mental health and, and, and emotional well-being. So, you know, there doesn't have to be something in inverted commas wrong with you, does there?
1: Yeah, I'd, but, I'd, I'd, I'd really I'll just leap in quickly on that. Yeah, and, I do. And, and this is a so in the UK, we use the ICD-11, the International Classification of Diseases. And over in the USA, you use the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual number five. Um, there's a lot more diagnoses in the United States. And um, I can't speak with any experience of being in the system, but I think there's a rush in some quarters to pathologize almost everything. Yes. And, and I think, and let's take, for example, grief. Yeah. Sometimes that gets. Uh, phrase now as a depressive adjustment reaction disorder or, or something like that and so it's given a disorder it's given a name and that's great so that's that's okay i'm allowed to have a day off work i can i can have a sick note written on that basis i can have medication prescribed to me on that basis mm-hmm. but grief is a natural part
0: yeah
1: of somebody dying somebody that you love that you care about and being able to think well about that grief and to and to, and to hear other people speak about that and uh, you know i'm i'm not jewish but the tradition of um sitting shiva i think isn't it where people spend time um sitting with uh, with the body afterwards where families mm-hmm. gather to 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 think about that and i think those sort of things are so important if we're not careful we will pathologize everything and it's why i talk about mental and emotional health mm-hmm. because certainly in some of the reporting that i see coming out from the states that there's a rush to pathologize particularly things like mass shooter incidents and the like mm-hmm. um but i think people's emotional health is just being battered by life around us by the fact that we've been in a pandemic for we're now into our third year okay um and uh, i about um six months in i i said to a a group of mental health first aid trainees and i said look i used to do some of these courses and some people would go i don't really know much about mental health and i I said i will, will never run a course again where somebody doesn't where, where somebody can arrive on the course and go, no, I've no idea what you're talking about, John. I've never come across it before. Never. Not me. Nobody in my family. Nothing. That's never going to happen to me again, because everybody knows somebody now who's had their emotional health impacted by the current situation, whether it's the fact that they couldn't see friends, family, loved ones, whatever it might be, whether they've lost their job, whether they've been furloughed, their emotional health has been affected by it. And so. Um, Now is the time, from my perspective, to keep that connection going, to to make sure that we are um, so available uh, for people. And I I can give you a good example of of a company that I know in the US. A friend of mine works there. And uh, they went through the 2008 crash and they asked people to cut their hours and work only sort of three or four days a week. And they kept cash on hand and they... um, Rather than have medical insurance, they had a, um, an on-site general practitioner and a nurse. And so everybody could come to that. And they got people, because it was kind of a company town, they got people to organize potluck suppers. And if you were better off, maybe you could leave some food for your neighbors and, and things like that. And they got through the 2008 financial crisis very easily. And they've just done the same again with the pandemic. Again, they've asked people to reduce hours, and but no one's lost their job. And it's interesting to me that so often when we have, you know, you were talking earlier about, oh, I've got to hit target. I've got to hit um, what the stakeholder demand is. That's only because we've got a rush towards shareholder output being the guiding principles of our businesses. If our businesses are guided by purpose, like B Corp and the like, then actually maybe we go down to four day weeks. Everybody keeps their job and that's how we manage to make it work. Mm -hmm. So I, I think. There's never been a better time. And I appreciate I'm bouncing around the subject a little bit here, but there's never been a better time to to be connecting with other people.
0: I agree. And, And that's what I wanted to say about those three steps that you shared with us. They're so simple and yet to do them well, so profound in many ways. Because if I look back over, you know, just a few weeks or whatever, if I think about how many times have I really, Being conscious of thinking well, listening well, and speaking well for what I need, that's just like, that's something that all of us as humans, you know, no matter what our roles are in life, no matter whether we lead professionally or not, you know, in in this time now, that feels so important. It really does. And I agree with you, it feels so timely. So I'd love to ask you, and I know through the conversation we shared today, you've been sharing elements of this, but I'd love to get a sense of you know what are the changes you would like to see in the world
1: as a result of this um so i think i i really don't like the word empower in a business sense um but i i'm just i'm gonna pull An example from from my professional life. So, I've been working with a large organization in this country um, who act in support of our National Health Service and have had a very, very busy pandemic, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And they are involved in the licensing and registration of nurses and midwives in this country and the professional conduct of the same. And I've been doing some work with them around peer support. Um, and I think there was a feeling previously that, um, excuse me, <clears throat> that there was, you, 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 you either got help from occupational health, or there was an employee assistance program, or you went to HR. But actually, those were the only routes that you could get help from. And I sat down with their HR and learning and development team. And we went, look, we can, we can help each other here. We don't need to start from a huge skills level necessarily we can teach people some basics about how it is to listen well how it is to let people marshal their thoughts and to have time and space just for them not for anybody else um and and literally over a couple of short sessions that's what we did we trained a whole um directorate in the idea of peer support and um, rather than everybody thinking "Oh, i must go to the manager they start to think well actually I could take control of that meeting. I could take control of the dialogue within the team. I could lean in and check with my colleagues. It's not just my manager's job, it's everybody's job to check in. And I think that's something which, in terms of kind of almost the social transformation that I would like to see with with the work that I do, is more availability if you think about the epidemic of loneliness that um people talk about um is creeping up on us um that great book uh the ex-surgeon general and his name escapes me um of the united states it's about i think the book's called together but about the fact that we're we're struggling um and, and communities are becoming atomized and i think for me The fact that you don't need to be a clinician. You don't need to be um, a coach. You don't need to be a therapist. To actually start a conversation with somebody and go, hey, how are you doing? And then instead of the person just kind of going fine, you then kind of go, you sure? Because you didn't seem fine in that meeting earlier. And I'm just concerned for you. And being prepared to listen for what that answer is. And, And I think that, that availability for people is is hugely different and and, and the fact that we don't have to have super special amazing training in order to speak to people about their emotional health we just have to be brave enough to go and how are you and I mean Brene Brown's piece on empathy the the one that's been um, clipped and there's an animation made um, people can go to YouTube and search Brene Brown empathy it's a lovely animation Um, because we don't have to have lived through whatever the person has gone through. Um, we just have to pitch up and be available to them. And something that I often say in in trainings that I deliver, and this is this is one that I came up with myself, and I say, speak to people's distress, not their diagnosis. You don't need to know what is going on for them, what is wrong for them. You know, if you saw somebody crying, you'd pass a tissue, wouldn't you? It's just an instinctive thing that you would do. Well, you wouldn't necessarily grill them on exactly why they're crying because that's not important right then, is it? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think for me, it's it's the idea that it doesn't. You don't have to do years of training to pitch up and be available. You just have to let people know that that's how you want your family or your organisation or your team to be. That you want it to be self-supporting. You want it to be um, inclusive. And and I guess we haven't really kind of got too deeply into the inclusion side of things, but I think. For me, so often in organizations, you sit in meetings and uh, they're led by, um, and and all the the views are shaped by what I call the HIPPO, the highest paid person's opinion. Um, But actually, if we practice that radical availability, um, then it's okay for people who are younger, perhaps, to have their views heard. It's okay for people who've um, not so experienced in the business, perhaps don't know all the jargon. Um, You know, there's, there's there's a thing around, is it okay to be me? And I think the more that we can make it okay for it to be you as an individual, for you to be you within your team and stuff, the the better it's going to be. And that doesn't need necessarily managers and leaders to make that happen.
0: I want to thank you, John, because I think you've really raised some really important points there. And it reminds me of uh, a book that I'm reading right now, kind of about... It's, well, it's about worldviews and culture, and um, the fact that some research has shown that in the Western cultures, so European, right the way through to North American Canada, we have perpetuated this view that the world is a kind of challenging place to be, and that people are lazy and they don't really care and or you know or they're going to be like if you ask them for help it's going to be aggressive what's going to come back and it's all like kind of individualistic in terms of every man for himself and i'll stab you in the back just so that i can get ahead kind of thing but the research doesn't bear this out the research actually bears out the opposite um and it's interesting these, these research people and i wish i could remember i'll put it in the show notes i'll find it but um, there was a research and they asked, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people. If you were on a plane and the plane was going down um, and you kind of had to get out, like, what do you think would happen? Do you think that everybody would be fighting for themselves and trying to, you know, like, get out the plane as quickly as possible, regardless of everyone else? Or would you imagine that everybody would try and help each other? out and um, not be every man for himself but the the collective would come together and try and help you know people that were not as able-bodied to get out of the plane and it was something like and I'm paraphrasing so I can't remember but it was something like 98% of people thought they were in plane one where everybody would be every man for himself and yet the reality shows and we know this from real life incidents that that isn't what happens everybody tries to help everybody else out and there isn't the chaos that we would imagine there would be so as you're talking here and it brings me back really full circle to our title this creating human connection with radical availability i realise this is like a it's like primal for us as humans but somehow we've lost our connection to that and that you're absolutely right. We don't need lots of in-depth training for this. We just need to feel comfortable enough to be ourselves and connecting with people and be compassionate and care for each other. Isn't that what we're talking about?
1: Yeah, I think it really is. And um, <clears throat> you talking there about the planes, it made me think of the miracle on the Hudson Um Captain Sully Sullenberger, um, yeah. and that's a fantastic story. And yeah. um, and I, I read his book, and he talked about you know you either manage the situation or the situation manages you, and mm-hmm. uh, and I think there's there's something very clear in that. And, and it's funny you say about the Western thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if we take particularly Anglo rather yeah. than Western, but if we take the legal systems, the British, and of course, you took your legal system from us in America, is, is very much adversarial. But elsewhere in Europe, the um, the system is inquisitorial. So you're inquisitive about what's going on. Um, and if you think about when you see um, cultures where people live a particularly long life, so for example, Italy, Greece, some of that's the Mediterranean diet, but also some of it is about people you know, still having extended family units. Community still getting together, people taking time to actually have conversations and stuff. So there's quite a lot of other things that tie into this in terms of how we live as societies as well that, that make a huge difference, I think. Yeah.
0: And you're making a really strong case. Here. One of the things we talk about is this movement from the individualistic, like the hyper individualistic kind of way of living your life with the I, um, and almost like a self centered, selfish notion of life, uh, taking the journey to we. And what does it mean for us to really be with other people, know that our lives are completely interconnected and intertwined, and therefore, you know, other people then become just as important as the eye so you're making a great kind of case here for this shift from (laughs) eye to we which I just love so I'm just going to ask you one final question which is you know if there's something that you wanted to share with our audience today perhaps something that we haven't got to yet in the conversation maybe just some words of wisdom what might it be
1: I've got a couple of things if you'll indulge me yeah Um, of course I think there's a quote from Nancy Klein. Most most people know the everything we do depends on the quality of the thinking we do first from Nancy. Mm-hmm. But I think people forget that uh, the follow up quote, which is the quality of our thinking depends on the way we treat each other while we are thinking.
0: Oh, I like
1: that. Yeah, there's a lot of depth to that, isn't there? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I'm going to add another quote and, and another um, Recommendation in for people. So the work of Megan Wrights and John Higgins and the book is Speak Up. And they say that speaking up is relational. It happens between someone being willing to say something and someone being willing and able to listen. Okay. So there's there's responsibility on either side of the of the dialogue. And and I think perhaps the the simplest piece of advice I can give people. Um, And this is something that came from you'll remember time to change as a um as a campaign over here where a Mm -hmm. number of our mental health charities got together um and got involved in sort of uh, doing awareness raising pieces and they have these very successful little set of videos and and their mantra is ask twice Mm -hmm. and i think this is so 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 easily overlooked Because people go, how are you? And everyone just goes, oh, I'm fine. Yeah, oh, you know, mustn't grumble. Same blah, different day. How are you really? And I think having the confidence to ask twice, sometimes that's going to be the difference. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. That's almost like a wake up, isn't it? When somebody asks you twice, <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, I'm, I'm out. I'm outside of the matrix now. Somebody's not just <laughs> asking for a, you know, like a trite answer. They actually really want to know.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: I love it. John, thank you so much. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. So happy you stopped by the podcast and I know our listeners will feel inspired and I'm sure they'll have learned so much from you. So thank you so much, my friend.
1: No, thank you very much for inviting me on. It's been a lot of fun. I uh, I think I, I was quite nervous bearing in mind some of the, the quality of the previous guests you've had, but uh, you've made it very relaxing. So thank you very much for that.
0: No worries. OK, everyone. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for listening in. Before we go, I want to remind you that all the resources and links for our guests are in the show notes at sacredchangemakers.com. A big thank you to our sponsors, Coaches Business School, who are helping us to make a direct impact aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, all visible on our website. And if you're a coach wanting to grow your impact, you will need to understand how to build a business that works today. So check out Coaches Business School's unique frameworks and methods to help you grow your business in a way that works for you and your clients and helps make a meaningful difference in our world. Hashtag transition team. It's time that we come together and build a bridge from what you want in life to include what the world needs from you. Together, we can make a meaningful difference. And again, you can find us at sacredchangemakers.com and our sponsors at coachesbusinessschool.com. And if our episode resonated with you today, I hope you'll consider joining us. So for now, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your intention and your efforts to make our world a better place. Until next time, lots of love.